Hello, Rich Bolas here, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Dad Mindset Show. Today, I chat with Dr. Christy Goodwin. Dr. Christy is a digital well-being and performance researcher, speaker, author, and consultant. In this episode, we discuss ways we as parents can help our kids navigate the ever-changing digital world. We also delve into the science behind why an otherwise very well-adjusted child might emotionally combust when you ask them to switch off their iPad. I don't know about you, but this topic is one that I feel that I'm only just beginning to scratch the surface on, but quickly realising just how fundamentally important it is for us as parents to level up in. So, I hope you enjoy this chat with Dr. Christy Goodwin. Dr. Christy Goodwin, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Now, you're a digital well-being and performance researcher. Can you give us a bit of background into what inspired you to become that, Christy? I'm going to be completely transparent, and I fell into this um, line of work purely by accident and by a serendipitous event. Um, I had been a teacher, um, an early childhood and primary school teacher for many years, and then became an academic. And my research um, focused on looking at the impact technology had on young children's um, learning and um, development. And I experienced what I now call life's greatest equaliser, and I became a parent for the first time. And all the theory and all the work, I was a kindergarten teacher one year, and I had a one to 35 ratio. Um, And so I had very naive expectations of what motherhood would look like having a one-to-one ratio. I thought it was going to be a walk in the park. That's why I call parenthood, I think it's life's greatest equaliser. So I had taken my son. Now, this isn't how I date his chronological age, but it is important for this story. Um, My son was six months at at the time, and he was born six months after the first iPad was released. Um, Important for this story. Um, So I took my son at his at six months of age to do his developmental check with a local healthcare clinic nurse. I had been to the paediatricians and got the all clear, but I was the A-type nervous first-time mum and worried the paediatrician might have missed something. Um, Poor second son, I did his six-month check at 12 months. And third son, I don't think I did a (laughs) six-month developmental check at all, but the first one I did it twice. Um, So I sat down with the local clinic nurse and she was asking all the regular questions you'd expect at a six-month developmental check. Was he having tummy time? Was he babbling, starting started solids and then she turned and asked me what screen time he was having and I thought wow we um, are imitating um, the American Academy of Pediatrics who part of their pediatric check is talking to parents about screen time and I thought this is fantastic and I said well nothing he's six months of age and Joan the health clinic nurse leaned a little closer and said, no, no, tell me Christy what screen time he was having and I thought it was a candid camera moment. I said well he's not having any screen time and she proceeded to do what Maggie Dent calls you know the skippy sound and she wagged her finger and did the and I said pardon and Joan the healthcare clinic nurse told me that at six months of age he would um, my son would fall behind um, because he should have been watching baby Einstein DVDs and he should have been learning colors shapes and nursery rhymes on a an iPad I was mortified um Acid, hadn't been caffeinated and actually couldn't come up with a coherent response. So I took um, a six-month-old home and put him to sleep. And he did, this isn't me showing off, this was an anomaly, but he did one of those turbo naps, you know, the naps when you go in and check that they're breathing and then you commando crawl out. And He slept for four hours this day. Um, and in his four-hour nap, I did two things. The first thing I did, ironically, um, and the irony really isn't lost on me, is I went to social media and said that babies need laps, not apps. And... 
that post um, went viral. I just, I didn't share too much, but I shared a little bit of the unfortunate situation I'd had. And the second thing, given I had all this time on my hands with this super long nap, was I thought, this is such an important topic. I knew I was in a really privileged position being a researcher, that I had access to the information and the research and science. But I also knew, having been, um, having that experience with Joan, that parents were given such confusing and conflicting and contradictory advice around screen time. Um, I'd had this advice from, you know, my healthcare clinic nurse, but a girlfriend of mine at the same time was told, ban screens altogether. Do not let your child watch a screen before they're two. Um, And so I knew as a parent um, what sort of misinformation um, and the myths that were being perpetuated. So I decided to write a book. Now, I did not write the whole book in this four-hour nap. Please do not be (laughs) duped into thinking that's what I did. Um, But I wrote a book about this topic. And since then, um, I've been asked to speak to schools. Um, This work came out around the same time where a lot of schools were implementing the Bring Your Own Device program. And many parents were raising significant concerns with schools rolling this out, saying, look, I just can't control this. My child's throwing techno tantrums. Um, They're spending more time than ever on a device. What's the impact it's having? And in school's defence, they often didn't have um, access to the the research and information. So um, I guess that's my passion, taking um, the research and science. I am a self-confessed nerd, um, but translating that into the practical and realistic information that parents need. So that's a rather long-winded answer. (laughs) I fell into this work. (laughs) No, it's great, Christy. And I think, you know, you you must see so much Um, in this field like and you have so many parents reach out to you what's the biggest question or the most frequently asked question that you get do you know what it is consistent and it does not matter what part of australia or even asia i do a lot of work in asia as well the number one question i am asked is um how much screen time what's the magical number um and I almost feel disappointed when I say to parents, I, you know, we do have government guidelines, we've got recommendations, but it, you can't simply prescribe an amount of time um, that is optimal or healthy for children simply based on their chronological age. Um, I believe that the time is important, but it's only one piece of the puzzle. Um, and I worry that if we obsess or have a really narrow focus and only consider how much time they're spending online, we miss some really other critical um questions, you know, what are they doing? Um, I think that's probably the bigger question we should be asking. When are they doing it? You know, what times of the day and how does that impact their focus and their their sleep? Um, How are they using it? Um, Part of the the digital wellbeing work that I'm doing now is teaching families how children and, and adolescents and even adults can use technology in ways that will support everything from their vision and their hearing and their musculoskeletal health. And because the reality is, whether we love it or loathe that technology is and will continue to be an integral part of our lives. Um, so, yeah, I think it's broadening the conversation. But most parents really want the magical number. Um, and unfortunately, I find it hard to prescribe, you know, a, a dose of digital. Um, I mean, if you've got multiple kids, we all know kids have all got different tipping points too. You could have kids that are the same chronological age and, you know, half an hour on a device and they one of them will come off and they're perfectly fine, but the other one has half an hour and they come off and they're like the digital zombie or they're aggressive or um, they're displaying, you know, some unfavorable behaviors. So it's really hard to prescribe an exact amount yeah and are there any i mean you mentioned obviously so what are they doing on there when are they doing it are there any key things around when they're using screen time that you can be quite prescriptive with 
Yes, and I um, I often say to parents, look, I don't like to should on any parent. I know as a parent myself, we get should on all the time being told what we should be doing. Um, my mission is just to arm people with research-based information so they can pluck out from that what they think would work. I think every parent knows what works best in their context. What I will say, we do know there's two times of the day where I strongly encourage parents to think critically about their kids' screen time. I'm not saying no screen time at these times, but be mindful of the choice or the types of screen activities they have. And that is at, at the bookend, the top and tail of your day. Um, if we look at, at, the, at the evening, um, we know that screen use in the 60 to 90 minutes before children and adolescents go to bed um, can delay the onset of sleep. Um, we know that these devices, particularly if they're using small handheld devices like smartphones or tablets or small gaming consoles, um, emit blue light and that blue light stops the body from making the sleep hormone melatonin. Um, we also know some new research is coming out saying that if we're using these devices before we go to sleep, not only can it delay the onset of sleep, but it can also impact the quality of sleep. So when we sleep, we go through four stages of sleep. And one of those really important stages is REM sleep, um, the rapid eye movement stage. And that stage is when we engage in memory consolidation. If you have been on your device, what we're finding is that often people's REM sleep is a lot shorter than what it should be. Um, again, we think that could be because of the melatonin that we're not making enough of. So trying to limit their use at night. The other reason that I say limit their exposure at night is a cyber safety risk. We know that the vast majority, close in fact to 90% of cyber bullying takes place at night. Now, part of that is because kids have often unsupervised access at night. Um, many children and adolescents have access in you know, bedrooms, etc. But also what we know happens at night, the part of the brain, the logical part of the brain, it's the prefrontal cortex. Um, I liken it to being the CEO or the air traffic control system of the brain. Um, it's the braking system, more or less. That part of the brain powers down at night. It's exhausted, it's depleted. Um, and a part of the brain, it's called your amygdala, it fires up at night. And that is your emotional hub. Um, and so you can see this can be a recipe for disaster. Kids aren't making logical decisions at night but their emotional brain and I mean it, it explains why we have more arguments with our kids and possibly even our spouse at night um, just because of the way the brain's working so nighttime is definitely one now I'm not saying none um, at night um, this is where making good choices maybe watching television is a better choice than looking at a small handheld device because TVs don't emit as much blue light Televisions at this point in time for most of us tend to be quite passive, so we're not sort of hyper-arousing the brain. Um, listening to podcasts would be a good choice, listening to audiobooks, listening to music, um, reading on a Kindle, all better substitutes than perhaps looking at, you know, a small handheld device. The other time of the day is first thing in the morning, um, before kids go to childcare or school, um, and again, making careful decisions. So it's not saying, because I know for some families, screen time can be part of the morning routine, but just being mindful that you're limiting their exposure to, you know, rapid fire, fast paced cartoons or, um, for, you know, first person shooting games that can really hyper arouse the brain and make it really hard for them to go from that sort of action into a classroom and be expected to pay attention to a teacher who may not be as, you know, doing somersaults across the screen and, you know, firing confetti and giving them stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that... the other thing with the morning I was just going to say, and I think this applies to us as well, is that if it's the first thing they do when they wake up, what we do is 
activate their stress response. Um, you know, the online world is like a sensory smorgasbord. There is so much for us to process. And if that's the first thing we do when we transition out of being, you know, unconscious, unconscious um, to being sort of subconscious or semi-conscious, and that's the first thing we do, we are overstimulating um, that, that stress response. And so that can lead to that moody, broody sort of post-screen behavior that we sometimes see too. Yeah. And it's a really good point, Chrissy, because I think um, I've seen it in my my middle um, daughter. So she had a situation where obviously she got revved up really quickly in the morning, but then straight afterwards we went, oh, you know, come on, pull that back. We've, we've got to do some cool stuff. It's a beautiful day outside. And immediately she said, it's boring. There's nothing exciting. There's nothing to do here. Can we, can we go over to, to grandma's? Because there's nothing here. And she was... It, it it was really sad because she genuinely believed there was nothing of interest in the house, in the court, with all the friends on the court. And maybe it was because of that comparison, you know, to, to what she was doing previously. It, it is. And this is why one of the key things I say to parents is that we need to more than ever foster boredom. We need our kids to experience what it's like um, for things not to be instantly rewarding, for things not to be instantly gratifying. Um, and the reason that our kids do gravitate to the online world is because exactly what you just described there, it's it's easy, it's fast paced, um, and it's it's the novelty factor. The online world, the, you know, with very little cognitive or mental effort, you can be rewarded and praised. Um, so being okay with boredom and, you know, when we our kids tell us that they're bored as though we've committed the worst crime against childhood on them, I say to parents, go and discreetly high-five yourself and pat yourself on the back. You are giving your kids something that is so important. Um, I do a lot of work with um, big corporations and one of the key things I say for peak performance in this digital world is that you need to digitally disconnect. Um, you know, having unplugged time, t- basically being bored. Um, Neuroscientists call it the default mode of thinking, or they refer to it sometimes as mind-wandering mode. We need that time, that idle time um, for ideation, for creative solutions. Um, But now we often fill that time um, with a screen. So I think the fact that your daughter, I think it's a sign you're doing a great job. um, The fact that she has declared she's bored is so important for them. Yeah, it didn't feel like a great job at the time. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, um, can can you explain a bit um, about? I mean, you talked about the prefrontal cortex and so on. Because as adults with like fully developed architecture, brain architecture, we are. I mean, I, I struggle to sort of rein in my um, desire for dopamine hits. You know, whether it's from checking email a bit too regularly and so on. Like as adults, we're struggling. So how do kids even stand a chance? They don't. And that's why I often want to say to parents, you know, the fact that your child or your teenager um, throws techno tantrums isn't a red flag that they're addicted or that there's something wrong with them. It's actually what we call a typical neurobiological response. And as you explained, we find all of us, uh, I call it the digital pool. Um, There's a whole lot of things that happen in our brain when we use technology coupled with how the technologies that we all use have been deliberately designed to get us hooked on these devices. So um, you alluded, Rich, to the the fact that we find um, 
you know, for us as adults, it might be checking emails or perhaps it's checking social media or perhaps we follow someone on um, YouTube or we've got an interest and whatever it is that we do online, maybe for our kids, it's gaming, um, maybe it's watching things on YouTube, maybe it's checking in with their friends on social media. What we tend to do online is usually pleasurable. So our brain releases dopamine and dopamine um, obviously explains why kids want more and more of it because they sometimes develop a, a tolerance for want of a better word but the other problem with dopamine is that dopamine hijacks the prefrontal cortex that part of the brain that helps us with that you know decision making and logical thinking now this part of the brain um, isn't fully developed and please don't shoot the messenger as a mum to three boys um, I'm going to bear some bad news to your male listeners here um, but the, the male male prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until late 20s I can hear the gasps. No, and no, no, for that, that explains you, a lot. That <laughs> <laughs> does, doesn't it? Um, and for those of you with daughters, it's in the early 20s. So somewhere in the 20s, the kids that we are raising now will have that brain architecture that helps. Now, that prefrontal cortex does three big jobs. Its most important job is to manage impulses. It's the self-control centre, self-regulation centre. Its other second job is... Um, working memory and the third job is mental flexibility and and they're you know quite elaborate skills but we can see if our kids don't have impulse control it's not fully developed don't ever expect your son to turn around after three hours of gaming and say I've had a sufficient quantity I'm going to tidy it turn it off and go and tidy my bedroom like we've got to have realistic expectations the other thing we know is that when we get hits of dopamine dopamine floods that prefrontal cortex and it turns off any operational capacity so even if it's not fully developed if you're getting hits of dopamine you find it really hard to self-regulate and the analogy I tend to use here for me it's dark chocolate Um, I often say to myself I'm going to have one square of dark chocolate and one becomes two becomes four becomes the whole block and now we know why it's the dopamine overriding the self-regulation impulse control center you could imagine for our young kids when they're doing something that's first of all easy Second of all, it's always new and interesting. And third of all, there's usually a social component um, for most kids, particularly once they hit primary school, whether it's a multiplayer video game, whether it's chatting with their friends, perhaps it's even just social capital. You know, you're watching the YouTube channels that your friends are watching and talking about at school. Um, Maybe it's you're not playing multiplayer games, but you are playing perhaps Minecraft and you talk to your friends about what you've crafted and built. Um, So there's a whole lot of, you know, that's going on in our brain. with the fact, you know, these technologies that we all use have been deliberately designed with some really, you know, um, persuasive design techniques. And the biggest one that explains why all of us, parents, children, teenagers, find it hard to to digitally disconnect um, is because the online world is a bottomless bowl. It's like an infinity swimming pool. There's, I, I often refer to it as the state of insufficiency. We never, ever feel like we're done. There's no finish line. Um, I don't know about you, Rich, but I, I desperately aspire to have inbox zero yeah. and it just <laughs> never happens. Or if it does, it lasts for two minutes and then there's a barrage that have made their way in there. Um, when, again, the technologies work against us. You know, um, the, the, many of our kids like watching streaming services, so YouTube or Netflix or Stan, and now the default setting on those platforms is the autoplay feature. Yeah. 
never ever going to feel like we're done because that next option keeps coming or there's a menu down that right-hand side in YouTube of exactly the types of, of videos um, that would pique our kids' interest. So, you know, it's the brain, you know, that I almost call it like this digital superstorm. We've got these vulnerable brains for all of us, particularly our kids, and coupled with these deliberate design techniques that make it so captivating and in our defence, we're the first generation of people who've trying to sort of navigate this. Yeah, and we've come from an analog world. I mean, I, I love that that comment about you know, to technology is only something that's invented during your lifetime. So to the kids, this isn't even technology; it's just how the world works. Whereas to us, this is definitely technology. And so, I mean, do you have any suggestions, or what would be the some key tips or tactics that you could suggest parents take? Yeah, so my big message to parents is be the pilot of the digital plane and not the passenger. And as the pilot, you've only got to get the three Bs right. Um, the first one is to have boundaries around your kid's screen time beyond how much. Yes, how much is important, um, but we also need to look about look at some of those things we talked about at the beginning. What are they doing online? You know, is it age appropriate? Um, is it active? Is it passive? Is it leisure? Is it learning? Um, really know the, the digital playgrounds your kids are playing in. Um, have limits or boundaries around when, you know, what times of the day can they use it? Um, where? Where are the no-go tech zones in your house? Um, uh, how do they use it? And also with whom? Do you know who they're interacting with? The second B is make sure that technology doesn't encroach on your children's basic needs. And I'm happy to explain what I think their seven basic needs are. Yeah, that's great. Right. Third B, I'll come back to that then. Um, the third B is boredom that we, we talked about before. So if you as, a, as the pilot, you can make sure that you've got some boundaries in place um, beyond just the how much. Many parents put limits on it and say, well, I've given them a, a screen time limit, um, but we've got to have sort of a broader set of boundaries, making sure that those basic needs are in place and boredom. And chances are your child can develop healthy relationships with technology. Banning it or, or suggesting that it's something that's taboo or top, you know, toxic isn't going to set our kids up because the reality is this is going to be an integral part of their lives. So I'll circle back to what their basic needs are. And this is where I say to parents, instead of having a screen time limit, I suggest a formula for calculating um, sc screen time thresholds more, I guess, or amounts of screen time, um, but not simply based on your child's chronological age. So what I um, did um, when I wrote my book and this wasn't in the four-hour nap, this was months and months of research, I looked at what um, neuroscience and developmental science tells us that our kids and adolescents' basic priorities, what are their basic developmental needs? Because we've got a really strong, um, really robust body of research that tells us what humans need for optimal development. And this is where I often say to parents, the basics work if you work the basics. These things aren't, you know, they're, they're neuroscience, but they're not rocket science. So kids need um, relationships. Um, they need language, they need sleep, they need play, they need physical movement, they need good quality nutrition, and they need executive function skills. And those executive function skills are those skills that we were talking about before that develop in that prefrontal cortex. They are the seven basic things that research and science tells us that kids need for optimal physical and psychological development. Now, we need to make sure that those seven needs, imagine a glass jar. Um, I'm borrowing Stephen Covey, who was a productivity expert, his analogy, and he said that in your glass jar, you need to put in life your most important priorities. They, he, I think he called them your rocks. 
Once you've put your most important rocks in, then there's some space often between those rocks inside that glass jar. And you can fill that up with sand, which would be your less important priorities. And I think that analogy works really well when we consider kids and screen time. Imagine their child, their week, maybe rather than a day, if we consider their life over a week, are we making sure that those seven basic needs are going in the jar? Are they Are getting enough time for sleep? Are they getting enough time for play and movement and physical activity? Then we could put screen time in and we wouldn't have to have all this moral panic that it's harmful and it's derailing their development because their basic needs have gone in the jar first. What's happening, however, in many Australian households is if we take all of our kids' needs out, what's filling the jar first is screen time, screen time, screen time, and all of a sudden the research is telling this. We have got primary school and secondary school kids who are not getting anywhere near sufficient amounts or quality of sleep. We know physical movement. Um, you know, we've got kids who are more sedentary than what they've ever been. Um, we've got kids with a delayed expressive and receptive language skills. Um, we've got declines. Um, anecdotally, teachers and a lot of allied healthcare professionals are saying we're seeing a decline in social skills amongst young people. So this is where it can potentially be a problem. And this is where I think you know, there's a lot of hype often around the impact of screens and social media on mental well-being. And I think it's not necessarily the screen and social media per se. It's the displacement effect. Yeah. It's the, the, what op- is it? the opportunity cost. Exactly. Spot on. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> that's a lot to take on, actually. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is harder than I thought, Christy. No, <laughs> so when when you look at the week, obviously, you know, movement. Oh, well, actually, probably a better example is during lockdown, we've mm-hmm. had – I mean, it's been front of mind for everyone. We've had opportunities to get out and exercise. So that's actually been something that I think a lot of families have got on board with and, mm-hmm. and actually spent time as a family going out for a bike ride or a walk. Um, you know, that has been good. Those um, sort of, those other skills, what are the ones that you think have been impacted most during lockdown? Uh, look, in, in some regards, I have seen families who have definitely increased their physical movement. In some family situations, it's actually gone the reverse. And we know movement is really critical for not just our physical health, but for mental well-being. Um, we know when we're physically active, we release uh, dopamine, serotonin, a whole lot of really positive neurotransmitters. Um, I think that's definitely one. The other one that has been both positively, I think, and negatively impacted is connection, that need for relationships. As humans, our most fundamental psychological driver that we have is relational connection. We are hardwired to be part of a group, to be part of a tribe. And I think we had, you know, physical distancing um, and and many people then, this explained why so many of us gravitated towards social media and, you know, connecting with people on Zoom calls and joining house party chats. And we really craved that connection, as did our kids. Um But I think we recognise that that connection, whilst it's great, and, you know, I couldn't have imagined going through lockdown without it. We celebrated my mum, who my mum lives 1.8, my parents live 1.8 kilometres away, and yet the cruel reality was we celebrated my mum's 70th birthday um, via a Zoom call, (laughs) which was just devastating but grateful that we had that capacity to, to do that. Yeah. Um, but I think we all agree, and I think one of the things we've really recognised is that nothing beats real connection with yeah. real people in real time. You know, that whole Zoom fatigue thing, 
part of that was because it is so hard and our brains work um, really hard to make meaning on a screen and to, you know, disregard the superfluous detail that's going on in the background, you know, when we're having a Zoom conference call with our boss and we're trying not to look at his cute kids or the background of his fancy house or (laughs) whatever it is, or we're trying to, because we don't see the whole body language and cues, we're often trying to make meaning Um, or we're too busy worried about what we call impression management because Zoom or video conferencing is the first time where we often see what we look like when we speak and engage. Um, And we don't have any of that in real person connection. So I think um, it's really exemplified that we miss those things. The other thing I think we've really seen a big shift in, and this is sort of from anecdotal comments I've heard from people, is sleep. Um, We didn't often have the boundaries. Many of us didn't have to get up at a set time. And so some of us have, and again, our our leisure screen activity sort of encroached later at night. So I think that has sort of displaced um, some of our yeah needs as well there we we ended up watching more movies so the kids would mm. occasionally sit down as a family in the evening and watch a movie during the week which would normally reserve for fridays and saturdays yeah. and i suppose that's been ratcheted up whilst we've been together at home do you have any advice as to how we can readapt to the new normal now now that the kids are going back to school because we've obviously i mean our household as an example the screen time went through the roof really and and i was pulling my hair out and i don't have much left at the start <laughs> and just like oh how can i deal with this but a lot of it was what you said christy about connection like my eldest daughter wanting to spend you know hours face to face with her friend just chatting or they'd be doing something and they'd be next to each other that was mm-hmm. and, and my wife explained oh that's actually really important you got to remember that they don't have that connection that they would normally have but i think uh, and so that made sense but obviously the 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 amount has definitely pushed out some of those other important things and i'm really keen to to wind it back do you yeah. do you have any suggestions there I call it weaning the screen. Um, I've had lots of parents in recent weeks ask me, how do I wean the screen um, successfully? And so what I suggest families do is they transition back to school or back to sort of what their new normal looks like um, is to be mindful that you might see some different behaviours in your kids and it may not have anything at all to do with technology. Um, You know, if you've got a particularly anxious child or a child who perhaps thrived during home isolation and dreads the thought of going back back to a sort of regimented um, school timetable. Um, so I think we've got to be careful not to point the finger and say, you know, it's, it's all the technology they had. There could be other extenuating circumstances. Um, this has been a very traumatic event for many people and, and some families. So there could be other, other reasons. Um, then I say to families, um, once you're trying to transition back, sit down with your kids and talk about what worked really well. What did they enjoy doing? Um, now, chances are they're going to pick all the things that you probably want to sort of curtail or, or reduce, but come up because I have find that if we go in and impose like a new where this is the return to normal screen time policy that I'm enforcing, it's not going to work. What I have found is that if we get our buy-in with our kids and we ask for their, um, you know, their feedback and their parameters, we're much more likely to have a successful implementation of that. So ask them what worked well, um, what sorts of things they'd like to keep, and then look at making steady increase or steady 
changes. I find, um, you know, making radical changes can really be detrimental. I've also found giving kids reasons and science for your decisions can work really well. The other thing I have found, um, a great book by James Clear, he wrote a book called Atomic Habits. Yeah, love that um, It's great. And I applied that Atomic Habits framework. So he talks about how you can increase good behaviours and how you can sort of decrease your, your bad behaviours. And what we can start to do is look, I believe, rather than say, saying, look, you can't play on your PlayStation, there's going to be no more TV at night, is to crowd out the less desirable, so in this instance it might be the less desirable screen activities, with another substitute, with an activity. And this is why I often say to parents, look at what's driving their your children's tech use. Did your daughter want to spend more time having social connection with her friends? Okay, maybe they loved playing social or using social media, or maybe your son really craved multiplayer video games because he was incrementally challenged. Um, but look at what's fueling their digital behavior and see if you can replicate that need, but in obviously a more appropriate way. Um, one of the great things James talks about in his book, when we're trying to create sorry, reduce bad habits is to remove the cue. And often seeing the device, seeing the laptop or the gaming console can be the trigger for I'd like to use it. Yeah. Um, so where you can, and I know, you know, you don't need to necessarily put sheets or towels over your, your TV or I'm not saying go to those lengths, but, you know, our son who's nine um, used his laptop obviously for remote learning, but he also used it for his leisure activities. And he kept saying to me when we were trans transitioning back to school, um, mum, I just keep wanting to go and look at it and look at the things on YouTube. He's quite interested in um, building bike jumps. So he's watching YouTube tutorials and then going to the local park and um, building his own bike jumps with a whole group of friends. But he noticed that every time he saw his laptop, he wanted to start using it. So he put the laptop in a cupboard of his own volition. Now, he's not a tidy kid. I'm not boasting at all. He's far from it. But he figured out that that was a good um, strategy. So I think getting your kids buy-in is optimal, you know, vital, coming up with a plan together and trying to crowd out their screen time with other, and, and you know, I'm not saying they have to do scheduled activities, but crowd out their screen time with other activities. But most importantly, look what need they had that was being fueled by the technology and see if you can find an alternative. And I suppose a big part there is it's what we're modeling as well. Cause yes. I find that invariably it's generally the time that I'm, I've got something that I feel I've got to do. So I, there's a little bit of, Oh, I just uh, hang on. I just need to do this. And I feel terrible. But then that sparks them going, right, well, if you're not going to talk to me or, or do what I want, I'm going to go and find something to do, which tends to be a screen. And Great. so I've, yeah. I've, I've been really cognizant of trying to put my own phone away as much as yeah. possible. And, um, but it, yeah, it's hard, really hard. It is, but I, I think articulating that to our kids too, like that we struggle with it. Um, and I, I found that, you know, I, Raising my guilty hand there too, Rich, as you were saying that, I'm thinking, yes, I know when I've gravitated towards the screen, my kids have often gone and, and done a similar thing. And part of that is because they've got mirror neurons. So that means they're hardwired. Kids imitate us. That's why, you know, and it's always our partner's worst characteristics, <laughs> never our own, um, that they, they choose to copy, but they are hardwired to copy. So I think 
as you said, and it's not easy. You know, sometimes, especially, and this is why we grapple with this as adults, work now bleeds into our personal lives, especially if we're trying to work from home. Um, But it, it bled into our personal lives even before we were doing that. You know, the fact that we've got mobile technologies, um, technology is now ubiquitous. It is literally everywhere. So I think talking to our kids about what we're doing on the device so they can actually see where we're not sitting there necessarily chatting to our friends the whole time but we're using it in a functional way um, can really work. But I've also found articulating when we find it hard um, and telling them some of the strategies that we've put in place to try and minimise our own use. That. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and going on that journey together. I Absolutely. Think, um, obviously, we talked about tech tantrums earlier. Do you have any advice around that and, and sort of managing those situations or maybe you know, managing the environment so we don't even get there? Yes. I'm often asked, is there an app that prevents the techno tantrum? And I'm not aware of one, but if you know an app developer, there is a very captive audience that would pay probably a lot more than 99 cents for your um, techno tantrum warning app. First and foremost, I want to remind parents that it's normal. Um, You know, it's not a red flag necessarily that your child's addicted or that there's something wrong with them. Um, What I try and get parents to do is start to understand why they're throwing it. So, you know, is it because they've had huge hits of dopamine. So if that is the case, um, what I say to parents is warn them before you want them to end their time. Um, You know, if you go in midway through an episode or midway through a multiplayer game or midway when they're, you know, deep in a, a group chat with their friends and you tell them to turn it off, you are literally terminating their supply of dopamine. Now, for me, if I sometimes, when I was doing in-person events, um, I'd often find it really hard to turn my brain off at night. So when I'd get home, I will admit I'd watch a little bit of trashy TV. If my husband came out midway through an episode and said, turn it off, Christy, time for bed, I would be irate. I'd probably throw something at him. <laughs> do this to our kids all of the time. Yeah. So the fancy for it is called cognitive priming but it basically means warn your kids so you know when you get to the next level when you've sent this message when you finish this battle and um, when this episode ends I'd like you to turn it off and that simple gesture of them turning it off helps them to feel like they've got some agency that they've got some autonomy um, and it sounds trivial but it's really empowering particularly for kids The other one there to to sort of counteract the need for dopamine is to give them an appealing transition activity. So don't say to them, put your gaming, you know, turn your gaming console off and go and do your maths homework. Um, (laughs) Don't tell your daughter to put a phone away and go and tidy her bedroom. They're not appealing transition activities. Give them a choice of two. They don't need a long menu, but when you've turned off, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, would you like to? ride your bike or jump on the trampoline. Um, when you've finished on, on your phone, would you like to go and have, you know, a warm shower or would you like to go and read your book? Two activities that you know that they like doing and bonus points if they involve physical activity because um, physical activity will often give them the dopamine and serotonin that they're craving. Um, another reason that we we get the sort of techno tantrum is because they often enter what we call the flow state. Um, this is where they literally lose track of time. So when your son looks at you with his puppy dog eyes after he's been gaming for three hours and says to you, but I only just started, you know, he's not testing your parenting capabilities, although it probably feels like that. Um, he's in this hypnotic state. Um, and again, game developers and apps 
developers in particular work really hard to get us into that flow state. Um, the background music that is often played in kids' apps and games is very hypnotic and it's very rhythmical and it's much the same type of music played in the backgrounds of casinos and shopping centres to get us into that flow state. Um, and so this is where, and this is why I say parents, you need to be the pilot of the plane. You need to be giving your kids, you know, even if it's just setting up a timer or a prompt um, or using some of your internal controls, you know, do you, can you use, if you're an iOS user, screen time, or if you're an Android user, digital wellbeing, um, where you can actually set limits on some of these platforms. Um, so there are things we can do. One of the big ones, particularly for boys, and, and the research is still um, in its genesis, is to figure out why boys in particular tend to have much more aggressive um, techno tantrums than girls. One of the theories is that often boys, particularly if they've been playing rapid fire, fast paced games, doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, violent games. But if they've been doing something that's really fast paced and overstimulating, what we've actually done is hyper arouse them. So their sensory system and their nervous system has basically been overstimulated. That's do, why I do said you think they'll have like a, a, adrenaline running through their system. Is absolutely. It Absolutely. For boys in particular, and we do know that when they're playing particularly for when it is first-person shooter games, the testosterone is definitely amplified, yeah. definitely. So it's a physiological change Physiological dealing with there. This is why I've got, you know, I have parents who often write to me and tell, you know, that, that they, they're terribly ashamed that their son has punched holes in walls or has become physically aggressive with siblings or parents. And it's not to say that that is in any way acceptable behaviour, and this isn't to dismiss that because that's obviously not appropriate behaviour at all. But what their body is trying to do is discharge all of the cortisol. Basically, there's been a whole lot of a cortisol that has built up in their body, which is the stress hormone, and they're trying to look for ways to discharge it. So this is where I say green time after screen time, get them out if you can in nature, get them doing something physically active to discharge that cortisol. Um, if you can, you know, you might need to duck and weave, um, but if you can, get in there and physically touch them. Um, when you touch someone, do not do this with your work colleagues because you will lose <laughs> your job. Um in fact, you'd probably get a fine in Australia at the moment if you do this, but physical touch <laughs> releases oxytocin. Oxytocin is the love hormone. Um, do this with your partner. I, I don't think we've got any restrictions here in Australia <laughs> anymore that prohibits this, but when your partner is picking an argument with you, just gently putting your hand on their forearm is enough to calm them down and gives them a hit of oxytocin. Um and it's hard for them to stay angry at you. So doing some of those things. Um, but what I say to parents is if you haven't had many boundaries in place and you're going to start implementing some of these rules, expect that it may get worse before it gets better. Yeah. Um, but over time, if you've got those firm boundaries, it will, you know, it will hopefully um, fix itself. Yeah. And where do you suggest parents start with actually coming up with those boundaries? I mean, your book is obviously like for top of the list i'd suggest do you have any um suggestions yeah so um look i recommend that parents actually sit down go somewhere with their kids again pick your timing you know having this conversation when they're tired at night or when they've just had a doozy of a techno tantrum saying right we're going to have some new rules not the best time um so sit down with them um i've got some digital well-being tips that people can access for free on my website so it might be worth going through um the checklist and saying look have we got some of these things in place um definitely getting your kids buy-in um i speak to thousands 
thousands of kids. Well, I used to um, speak to thousands of kids throughout Australia, and I was always so impressed by their level of understanding and their interest in this topic. Um, they want to know about how they can use technology in the best ways possible, um, often because they want to win the argument with mum or dad when <laughs> mum or dad are telling them it's bad for them um, and you shouldn't be using it. Um, but I think definitely getting um, their buy-in and watching what, what works in your family. Again, you know your kids best. Um, so I, I think taking on board some of the advice but then running that through your filter and what would work for your family situation. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's come up recently for us is the, um, talk about social media. And obviously mm -hmm. Facebook has you know the legal limit of 13, but um, one of uh, my daughter's friends had started using Messenger for Kids. And so immediately... My daughter was like, oh, can we get this? Because so-and-so has it. And and I looked at it and I was like, wait a minute, this is this is essentially Facebook. And it was really hard to push back. And there were tears and all sorts of stuff. It was really tough. But um, it was great to, and going, I was lucky I was going through some of your resources at the time as well and going, oh, yeah, I'm so glad <laughs> like this is the, the subject at the moment. Um, but I think... That's the sort of thing that would be so easy as a parent to just let happen because one of the other friends has it. And I heard you suggest getting together with the other parents and forming a bit of a coalition and saying, look, what are the, the group sort of um, boundaries? And and that, I, I think, is gold. And we're definitely going to um, have a word with some of, the, some of our fr um, child, uh, children's parents as well. It really does. That's probably the second most popular question I'm asked. So apart from how much screen time, the next question is usually what do I do if my child wants an app or playing a multiplayer game or asks for a phone um, and I don't want to give it to them, but I also don't want to be them to be socially ostracised. Um, and a couple of things I say to parents is firstly fact check what your children are telling you. They'll tell you that child X, Y and Z all have said game. Um, and I'd like it. And if you say no, it's usually closely followed by the statement, you suck and you're the worst parent <laughs> in the world and I hate you and along those lines. And I remind parents, it's okay. I, I, you know, I think it's almost a rite of passage as a parent if your kids say that to you because it's a demonstration that you've got firm boundaries. Don't give them a no without reasons. Give them, you know, obviously age-appropriate reasons. We don't want to terrify them or, you know, make them more scared than what they need to be. But giving them reasons for your no, um, I think, can really work. And I think trusting, again, your intuition as a parent, knowing what will work for your child and where you can fall back on the legal age requirement for most of these apps and platforms they usually do have sort of an, an age limit um, that's not necessarily the age limit to signal when they're psychologically ready to cope with these demands it's a, literally a, a copper it's the children's online privacy protection act um, when it's legal for companies to actually obtain data um, and I often say I use the analogy that if your eight-year-old son came home one day and said dad can I have the keys to the car um, I'd like to go and do burnouts you wouldn't give him and and <laughs> This is where you're meant to say, no, we wouldn't give him the keys to the car. I've had one audience where I asked this and they had a debate. <laughs> it was a, a semi-rural area, I will say that. But there was a debate about whether you would let your child, your eight-year-old son, have the keys to the car. Here in Sydney, it's just a hard no. Um, but... 
Um, and equally, your 11-year-old daughter comes home and says, how about a shot of tequila with dinner tonight? We wouldn't do it. Um, and so I think that just because everybody else is doing it, firstly, fact check that they are. Um, next, I say to parents, upskill yourself. Know what the, the tool is that they're asking for. Um, again, so you can make an educated and informed decision. And I really strongly encourage parents to go to the eSafety Commissioner's website to do that um, or Common Sense Media. They're the two go-to places that I recommend. Um, and then, as you suggested, form that coalition, get in with other, even if it's just one other child um, that you can really forge and foster that relationship with so they can't use the social ostracization card um, with you and revisit it. Um, you know, it's, it's not a hard no. It's just a no for now and it's a no for these reasons. Yeah. What, what worked really well was actually me saying, I don't know, let me do some research before we make a call on it. And and then I sat down with her and we, we looked up stuff and I was going through reviews and they're all negative. She goes, but dad, you're only looking up the negative ones. And I said, no, look at the search term. I'm just looking up reviews here. And the majority of the ones floating to the top are all negative. I'm not making this call. And and that really helped the conversation. And she's like, oh, right, okay. And and then we just worked through it together. And yeah. that that worked like a treat. And I love that idea of sitting down with them because you'll garner insights into what it is that's making them want that as well. Um, so, again, you can look, okay, look, I, I can see you'd really like to spend some time connecting with your friends online. I'm not comfortable with Facebook Messenger, but how would you feel if we came up with and, you you know, you might need to do some due diligence and come up with a suitable alternative. Um, how would you feel? And one of my concerns with parents is when we introduce social media, we often think, oh, they're tech-savvy kids. They know what to do. And they don't necessarily know how to behave respectfully and responsibly online. You know, many adults don't know how to do it. Um, so I think if you are going to introduce an app or a platform with your kids, sit down and talk to them about how to actually use it in respectful and responsible ways. And it's an explicit and it's an ongoing conversation. Um, you know, we often throw kids, you know, we'd never throw kids in the ocean and expect them to know how to swim, nor should we do that in the digital world without talking to them and showing them how to use it in the best ways possible. Yeah. Wow. Okay. A lot of work ahead of us. <laughs> I'm feeling Sorry. quite feeling quite daunted here, Christy. <laughs> no, it's, I think it's because I, I I try not to lean into social media as much as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that I know I've got you know little impulse control, and that's why I've held myself back a bit. But I I reckon this is going to be a really tough challenge for so many parents, especially ones like we said earlier that are struggling a bit themselves to actually understand what the heck this is fundamentally that we're trying to do and and even come up with boundaries for themselves in the whole mix as well it's it's really i mean it's fascinating times so if, if nothing else it's pushing um pushing us as parents to learn more about our own psychology and and our own triggers our own cue you know all that sort of stuff which is brilliant i think and if we can if we can go on that journey with our kids that'd be wonderful for them to, you know, know thyself uh, and give them the tools to actually figure this out for themselves and, and have a, a reason sort of debate about whether this is a good thing or bad. And, and I guess that's the goal I'd love to shoot for, where we can sit down and, and argue this out in a, in a reasoned way. Mm. I'm so glad you said that because that's the, the 
I'm midway through, so it's too late to change, but that's the topic of my book that I'm currently writing now. Um, it's about how do we tame technology as adults? Um, because in our defence, we are the first generation of parents who are raising completely digital, you know, digital, I don't really like the word digital natives, but kids who are immersed in this tsunami of tech from the minute they are born. Um, and we don't have any frame of reference. As you said, um, we had analogue childhoods. You know, we stared at the sky, not at a screen. We spent time with people, not with pixels. And this is the very first time in history where a generation of children and adolescents know more about a topic than what their parents, their caregivers and their teachers know. And so the whole dynamic has shifted. Um, but what I think is that we've got to get a grip on our technology as adults um, and come up with those boundaries um, and go back to that trusted position that we've got that fully developed prefrontal cortex. You know, it may not feel like it at five o'clock on a Friday, um, but it, it is um, there and we do have life experience and we've got a catastrophe scale. Our kids don't. Um, and the, the thing that really worries me is that they've got very, you know, access to very powerful technologies um, and they don't have that self-regulation, but what they share, what they post, what they consume is leaving behind, I call it their digital DNA. And we want to curate a really positive digital DNA for our kids. But the only way we can do that is if we get a handle on our digital habits and well-being um, as adults. And it's it's hard. <laughs> I struggle <laughs> as much as anyone else. I'm writing this book more or less as a guidebook for myself. <laughs> But it is hard. And in our defence, you know, the tech has been designed in a way um, to get us all hooked on it. Um, yep. It's hard. So, sorry, that's probably there's not a, the there's a, there's a bunch of really good uh, business models that are built around this. <laughs> and we're, totally. Yeah, we're, we're almost, it's almost like shooting fish in a barrel. Yes. But uh, so, so you've got the book coming soon. Uh, like, do you have a deadline that you're working towards? When should we no, look no. forward for it? I'm going to say... Where are we? Don't we in 2020? Yeah. It will be out in 2021. I'm, I'm just saying that for now. Just Great. To be safe. And what other projects are you working on or resources or would you like to give a shout out to? So um, because this is such a tricky and ever-changing um, world, I created something um, last year called the Switched On Parents Portal, and it's basically an online library. Um, I've had some of my in-parent um, seminars that have been professionally recorded and edited. Um, I've got webinar recordings. I've got PDF cheat sheets. Um, little video tutorials on a whole range of digital dilemmas. So it's designed for parents of four to 16 year olds. Um, just because I know um, I'd often have parents come to a seminar and say, but I need my partner to hear this seminar. Um, or I'd have parents come with a particular issue and, you know, I'd address that then. But then, you know, two months later, there was another concern that parents were facing. So it's a, a library um, and I'm happy to give, I'll send a discount code. Um, I'll give your listeners 20% off. It's lifetime access. Um, and you get all of those resources and I add new things. So um, at the moment, while I'm not traveling around speaking, I'm doing monthly webinars and all of the webinar recordings go in that library. Um, Great. Yeah. As well. yeah. So we'll so, put, put a link to that uh, on the um, the show notes. That'd be yeah. excellent. Oh, thanks for that. Perfect. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many questions that I have. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, that would be great, Christy. I, I'm, so, I'm very cognizant of your time as well. So, so um, let's call it a day there then. And let's definitely do a, 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 you know, a part two because this is such an important topic. And I, I think... Maybe we could um, answer some of your listeners' digital dilemmas. Oh, so we can, yeah. We want to do the sort of a, yeah. Yeah, email in any questions and yeah. we'll do a, a round two and we'll actually ask... Uh, um, key questions brilliant I like it okay no. let's do that um, so <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time Pleasure. this evening and um, thank you again for all the work you're doing because you know it, this is such important work and there are so many people that you know are alike me, myself included on this so so thanks again Christy uh, I love what you do and um, yeah you. keep uh, keep at it great to chat Thanks ever so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Christie as much as I did. If you'd like to find out more about Dr. Christie's work and access her Switched On Parents portal with a 20% discount, I'll include all the links from our conversation in the show notes at thedadmindset.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please give the show a rating and even more so, please review it. I love reading reviews and it helps others discover the podcast. Well, that's all for me for now. So I hope you have a great week and until next time, enjoy your caffeinated beverage.